I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. But Lady Macbeth should have known that not all flowers are innocent. On today's episode, we're going to be diving into the dark side of plants. We'll be talking to Amy Stewart, whose book Wicked Plants covers the most fascinating and deadly crops and their fatal outcomes throughout history. We'll also be catching up with Dr Chris Thorogood to understand some of the science behind how certain species of plants have evolved to become carnivorous. And I'll be in the greenhouse with a killer plant of my own, one that's native to subtropical wetlands but can now be found in every garden centre across the country, the Venus flytrap. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. ever look into your neighbour's garden and wonder what are they growing? I've certainly been sometimes tempted. One of my neighbours has a lovely hedge but sometimes little red berries poke out of it that look pretty tempting to eat but I'm glad I know enough botany to not because they're actually from bittersweet which is Solanum dolcumara. It's a kind of nightshade and they wouldn't do me any good at all. And you'd be right to approach today's author's garden with caution too because Amy Stewart, the mind behind wicked plants, the A to Z of plants that kill, maim, intoxicate and otherwise offend, had her very own poison garden as she wrote her book, which makes her the perfect guest to clue us into the deadlier side of plant life. You know, I think what really interested me is what is right in front of us that we maybe don't see or don't appreciate. It's not even just what could this plant do to you, but what has it done throughout history? Let's talk about the potential link between ergot and the Salem witch trials. So ergot is a fungus that grows on cereal crops like rye or other grains, and it contains a precursor to LSD. So it's a hallucinogen that survives the process of being baked into bread or brewed into beer. So we know, going back at least as far as the Middle Ages, that occasionally there would be these outbreaks in a small village and a whole bunch of people would go crazy all at once. It was like they all went to Woodstock all at once, only they didn't mean to, and everybody kind of loses their mind. It was very strange. So in the United States, the early colonies back in the 1600s People were sort of living off the land and sort of just figuring out what they could grow. While in Europe, they had sort of discovered the cause of ergot and had even come up with a treatment for it by rinsing the grains in a salt solution, that news had not yet reached the colonies in, in the United States. So we have this incident that happened in Salem, Massachusetts, where a whole bunch of girls went crazy all at once and nobody could figure out why. 
And so they figured, well, they must have been bewitched. That makes the most sense. <laughs> so 19 people went to the gallows during the Salem witch trials. We don't know for sure what really happened in Salem, and there are a lot of competing theories about it, so I don't want to say that this is definitive, but one possibility is ergot poisoning, because the conditions were right for an outbreak of that fungus in the fields that winter. It had been a very wet winter. They would not yet have known about ergot, so they weren't sort of protecting themselves against it. And this sort of crazy behavior among a whole bunch of people all at once is kind of consistent with that. So we can't be sure, but it's at least possible that ergot poisoning is what led to this very famous incident, the Salem Witch Trials. The reason we don't see outbreaks of ergot among grain crops like rye and other cereal crops is that the grain can now be treated. So we figured this out a long time ago that you could rinse the grain in a salt solution. There's sort of a more modern version of that, but basically it kills the fungus so that it does not end up in flour or, you know, the final ingredients that you would use to bake bread or make beer or anything else with grains. The thing you have to remember about the plant world generally is that they have to have some way to defend themselves. You know, they're rooted in the ground so they can't run away and hide. It's natural that they would want to inflict some sort of pain and suffering on anyone who tries to eat them. So in that sense, it's surprising that there's anything in the plant world at all that we can eat because you have to sort of wonder, well, what is the advantage to the plant in that? In some cases, it's sort of obvious what the advantage is, but you know, for the most part, most plants don't want to get eaten and they have some way of causing you pain if you try to do that. Even in the UK, there are plenty of deadly, dangerous, poisonous plants. Moving on to a poison that you could encounter today. Poison hemlock is a, it's a weed around Europe, throughout North America. It just grows as a weed alongside roads. You know, it looks kind of like Queen Anne's lace, only it has purple spots on the stems. People are pretty used to seeing it everywhere. It's quite ubiquitous, but it's also very toxic. The leaves, the seeds, the roots, all parts of the plant are poisonous. But it's also interesting because it is a member of the carrot family and it looks like some of its non-lethal relatives. So the root is a long white taproot that looks similar to a carrot or a parsnip. Well, you know what carrot tops look like. They look kind of like that. So you can see how someone could mistake that for something like parsley, maybe, which is also in the same family, in the carrot family, parsley or dill or, or one of those types of herbs. So I think it gets mistaken for food a lot. I interviewed somebody who was poisoned accidentally by hemlock. He had picked a bunch of carrots out of his garden and one of those carrots was white, but he didn't think anything of it because sometimes carrots are white. So he chopped it up and made a salad or something out of it. And then he was driving to a friend's house and on the drive, he noticed that his eyes weren't moving sort of left to right and up and down the way you want them to when you're driving. He'd have to actually turn his head and that was the beginning of paralysis setting in, which happens with hemlock. So he's driving a car while this is happening. And somehow he manages to get off the road or get to his friend's house. And they called a poison control center. 
that was pretty quickly able to sort of troubleshoot and guess that this is what happened. And they sent him on to the emergency room and the poison control center called ahead to say, you've got someone coming in, here's what we think is going on with them. And so he was okay, he lived to tell the tale, but it just shows you how common this plant is and how easy it would be for someone to get poisoned by it. I would absolutely not recommend using a plant identification app to definitively tell you whether a plant is poisonous or not. I just had a situation a week or two ago where a friend texted me a photo and said, look, we have, you know, morel mushrooms sprouting in our garden right now. And I said, you need to make really sure those are real morels and not false morels, which can be poisonous. And I made kind of a big deal out of it. And later they were sort of giving me a hard time for always being the one to bring up <laughs> poisonous plants or in this case, poisonous fungus. And I said, you know, I'm just trying to save you a liver transplant here. That's all I'm trying to do. And that's really the question to ask yourself. Like, is it so important for me to eat this plant that I'm willing to risk a liver transplant? If you have to ask an app whether it's poisonous or not, you don't have enough information. You know, a lot of people will tell me after they've heard me talk about this book, they'll say, oh, you've made me afraid of all my plants, you know, either my house plants inside or the plants out of my garden. And so what I tell them is go home and look at everything inside your bathroom. Probably in your bathroom you have, let's say, shaving cream. You know not to eat the shaving cream. You would never eat it. And so that's how you need to think about your plants. They're not a salad ingredient for you necessarily. I do think it's important to know a little bit about what you've got growing. It's helpful to do things like wear gloves and take basic precautions. There are definitely plants in your garden that could give you a little bit of a rash, or if you got them in your eye, would cause a little bit of a problem. So I think it's, it's just about having a healthy respect for nature. You know, I live near the Pacific Ocean, and everyone who lives along the coast knows you don't turn your back on the ocean. We love the ocean, we love the beach, but there's also powerful sneaker waves that can creep up on shore and every year a tourist gets swept out to sea because they don't know better than to be a little bit careful. And so I think we have that level of caution in the animal world, we have it in other places, but with plants we, um, we let our guard down. And it's, it's just important to think about plants as being part of nature and nature is powerful and we have to kind of respect that power. Thank you, Amy Stewart. And as Amy mentioned, there's no reason to try and get rid of all poisonous plants. You know, quite often they do have fantastic value for other species. For example, something like hemlock water dropwort. It's a lovely native wildflower, deadly poisonous to us. Don't eat it. It smells horrible, so you wouldn't really want to. But it's a brilliant plant for wildlife. It has fantastically pollinator-friendly flowers. And generally, these toxic plants do actually tell us as well. So, for example, they wouldn't go to the effort of having really delicious sweet fruit if they're also toxic. So quite often, things that are poisonous will taste bitter or they just won't taste nice. Overall, it's amazing to behold what the plant kingdom is capable of. Plants can produce the most delicious fruits for us to enjoy, or deadly berries and leaves that can quickly prove fatal. I love foraging. I eat wild garlic in the spring. I love nettles. Nettles make a great soup. It's really tasty. It's really good for you. Blackberries in the autumn. But I will only ever eat something that I'm absolutely 100% sure. And if you're even the tiniest bit unsure, don't eat it. Check with an expert or just leave it alone because it's not worth the risk.
You might not have known this, but I have my own special relationship with murderous plants. In the greenhouse on my allotment here in Cambridgeshire, I grow gorgeous Venus flytrap, among some other carnivorous treats. So Venus flytraps are known for being one of the few plants that you can actually see move. And they're also one of the few plants, possibly the only plant that can count, that have these fantastic modified leaves which have become moving flytraps. It's almost like a pair of plant hands that are poised to clamp down on some unsuspecting insect. And the reason that they're so successful is the fact that they can count. And they have little hairs, they're called trigger hairs, within the traps. And if they are triggered twice within two seconds, the plant knows that it's not just a gust of wind or a piece of dust. It's the sensation of a fly, a nutritious meal, walking across the pad. They won't be triggered just by a single trigger on the hair, but two triggers within a certain period of time, and they will clamp shut. So they're quite distinctive, and they're really good fun. They come from the bogs of Carolina. They're actually quite endangered in the wild, but luckily they are quite easy to propagate. They're micro-propagated commercially, and there are a few different varieties as well, so you can get some with really kind of dark, almost purpley leaves. You can get some that are much paler, and they're a really fun plant to grow. You can keep them as houseplants. People quite often get something called fungus gnats that live in the houseplant compost and they're annoying little tiny little flies and the Venus flytrap will quite happily munch those or house flies as well. Mine's even eaten a slug. I keep one of mine in the garden over summer and I keep another in the greenhouse all year round. And it was so wonderful to just see it. You know, this is botanical revenge, a plant eating a slug because this unsuspecting slug crawled into a trap and I was like, yes. But talking about greenhouses, that tells you a little bit about their ideal growing conditions because they're not houseplants all year round. This is where people go wrong. They see it in the houseplant section of a garden centre and they take it home and then after a year or so they die. What they need is a cool winter rest. And for most of us, unless you're in a really, really cold area, actually an unheated greenhouse is perfect. So in sort of October time, you can take them in, you can have them outside over the summer or inside in your house, but give them a cool rest over winter. And that could be an unheated greenhouse, that could be an unheated room in your house, that could be a garage window, something like that, but they need to cool down. They don't want to be completely frozen solid, but they will actually take a little bit of frost. People are quite surprised and they will start to look a bit ropey and that is completely fine. No one looks their best when they've just woken up and Venus flytraps need that little cool winter rest. They'll go to sleep, they'll lose some of their leaves, some of them will go a bit brown and that's fine. During the summer, they want to be watered really, really well with rainwater, keep them in a dish of rainwater, but over the winter you can let them dry out a bit. And then what I do, it's a lovely job for a warm spring afternoon, is get a pair of tweezers and just pull out all of the manky growth once you can see they're starting to regrow. And actually, that's all you really need to do. I actually grow a few different carnivorous plants. I keep them in my greenhouse all year round, my little botanical crew of helpers. I have a Saracenia, a Saracenia purpurea, but a lovely kind of vibrant, zingy, lime green colour pitcher plant. Then I have one called Drosera capensis, which is a sundew. So they have these long kind of pads of leaves with beautiful, delicate filaments, each one covered in a little drop of sticky dew. And they will catch flies and they will fold over the fly and dissolve it with these amazing digestive juice. It's gruesome, but it is an absolutely gorgeous plant and one that you can grow again as a house plant. But like the Venus flytrap, it does appreciate a winter rest. 
So Venus flytrap, they're such a unique plant, there is nothing like it. It's really fun to grow a plant that kind of turns the tables. We normally think of insects eating plants, you know, pests munching away, and then to see a plant that kind of gets its own back, that's really, really fun. And kids love them as well. It's a good plant to kind of encourage younger generations into gardening. So all in all, if you've got a bit of space to keep them cool over the winter, I can't recommend growing these murderous plants enough. Speaking of sinister species, have you ever wondered why plants evolved to eat flesh as animals do? We spoke to Dr Chris Thorogood on the science behind this phenomenon. So carnivorous plants are the predators of the plant kingdom. These are plants that really challenge our notion of what plants are and how they behave. And these rather sinister plants, they evolved in environments where nutrients are scarce. Um, So these might be places like water-filled swamps or rain-leached mountain slopes. And so they evolved this carnivorous habit to supplement their diet to enable them to survive in these these nutrient-poor environments. These meat eaters, they challenge our notion of what a plant is. But I also think they're curiously beautiful in, in their own way. There are nearly 600 species of carnivorous plants, and they actually evolve several times from different plant lineages. So what I mean by that is they're not all related. Their traps range from simple structures such as leaf rosettes, which trap water, things like bromeliads, to really intricate structures that employ these unique strategies to capture and kill specific types of prey. And since Darwin's first detailed observations in the 19th century, many carnivorous plants have been discovered around the world, and and we're understanding more and more about their intricate trapping mechanisms. But I should say that surprisingly little is known about many of them, and new species are still being found and described every year. I've always found carnivorous plants fascinating, and they were some of the first plants, I think, to have caught my eye. Like many botanists, horticulturalists, and, and keen plants people around the world, these are the plants that sort of stop you in your tracks. I remember seeing a little stand of Venus flytraps for sale in a garden centre and just being absolutely fascinated by a plant that could move and that seemed to have this elaborate means of trapping insects. There's something quite extraordinary about that. So I've always found these plants really interesting. And then I remember as a kid, I had a large fish tank on my bedroom windowsill in which I'd grow tropical things. And I started growing Nepenthes, which are these tropical pitcher plants, which can be quite tricky to grow in the conditions of our houses. They hate things like central heating and drafts, and they need a lot of humidity. So growing them in a fish tank suits them very well, actually, because it recreates those humid cloud forest conditions. And really, I was hooked on them. (laughs) And so I feel I was destined as a botanist to spend a lot of time with these plants. So luckily for me, that's how it turned out. Since I joined the Botanic Garden in Oxford, I think it's fair to say there has been a proliferation of carnivorous plants. It's something that our team at the Botanic Garden grows very well. So actually, if you do visit Oxford Botanic Garden, there's one particular little glass house, we call it our cloud forest house, which I think is a truly immersive experience because what we wanted when we designed the plant display was for people to actually walk into the pitcher plant so that they tip their contents all over your head which I think is a really invaluable experience to anyone trying to understand more about these plants and what it's like to be among them in their natural habitat. So it's a truly sensory and immersive experience that, I probably shouldn't say this, but might leave you covered in half the contents of 
digested insects all over your <laughs> all over your top. So do visit Oxford Botanic Garden and see these wonderful plants growing there. There are some very good rules of thumb when it comes to growing carnivorous plants. They do have different likes and dislikes, but one pretty good rule of thumb is to use rainwater where you can and to avoid using tap water, particularly if you live somewhere where you have very hard or chlorinated tap water. You can get away with boiling water in the kettle and then using that when it's cooled down, but over time it, it does tend to build up um, sort of toxins. So I, I would recommend rainwater if, if you can. That's a, a good rule of thumb. My next rule, which may surprise some listeners because of the exotic looking nature of these plants, but it's it's about sunlight. And, um, and I know this from my work on these plants as, as an evolutionary biologist, that they can only afford to grow these leaves, which is what these traps are, which are very efficient at catching insects, but very inefficient at catching light because of their mysterious shapes and colors if they have plenty of sunlight in the first place. So even the Nepenthes, the tropical pitcher plants, which you might be tempted to put in a shady corner, they really do need lots of sunlight, particularly in our climates where the intensity for much of the year isn't that high. So those are two pretty good rules of thumb. And then we get down into um, the nuts and bolts of it. So if you're growing, for example, a, a Saracenia pitcher plant, the North American pitcher plants, which many of our listeners will, I, I think, um, they like to put on their, their growth during the sunny period and they need lots of water. So I'd actually saturate them in that period to recreate some of the boggy conditions which they grow in in the wild. But then in the winter, as things cool down and the light levels drop, that's when I'd, I'd hold back on the watering and just keep them a bit damp. And you can do the same thing for Venus flytraps. They can be a bit tricky in our climate, but you know you can get away with them. If it's an Nepenthes, they really do like a lot of humidity. And the problem is, is that we tend not to in our homes. You know, it's not good to have a, a damp house. And so we do things to try and dry out our house, um, particularly central heating. And the plants really dislike those conditions. So if you can find a spot where there is humidity and light, and so perhaps the best place for that might be in the bathroom or the kitchen, potentially, um, then, then you can get away with it. And some people do really well. I've seen some of the hybrid Nepenthes thriving for people indoors. So, so they are worth giving, giving a, um, a go, I think. So, so you know, they, they, can, they can be a bit fussy. They're not necessarily the easiest of houseplants. But if you get to know their likes and dislikes, you really can have them prosper in your house. Nepenthes pitcher plants, these are the ones that really excite me. They're sometimes called monkey cups and they grow in the old world tropics. And there are um, not far off 200 different species of them. And they produce an astonishing array of leafy goblets in all different shapes, sizes, colours and, and geometries. And I find these plants fascinating. I, I always have. And a couple of weeks ago, I got back from an expedition in the Philippines where I was so lucky to see these plants growing in the wild. We were trekking in the Sierra Madre in the Aurora province, and um, the conditions were quite tough. So we were sort of swinging from vines and <laughs> hauling ourselves up rocks and smacking leeches off our arms, that kind of thing. And then we got to the top of this rocky ridge in the mountains and it was a place that was bathing in mist and dripping in ferns and moss a really sort of warm wet wilderness and there to my left were these sprawling vines of nepenthes this one was nepenthes gracilliflora so it had these long sort of lime green pitches bulging at the bottom a beautiful shape 
all sort of hanging and dotted among the fernery and the vines and the branches, uh, framed by a view, a concertina of blue mountains in, in the background. And I tell you, that was an experience I'll never forget. Thanks to Dr. Chris Thorogood. I would love to go back to Oxford Botanic Gardens. I feel like I'm really overdue a visit. And Chris makes a really good point about rainwater over tap water. In so many parts of the country, we have something called hard water, so it's full of dissolved minerals, calcium carbonate, and things like that, which these plants wouldn't be exposed to in their natural habitat. So definitely use rainwater. And it's really great to use rainwater for your plants in general because tap water quite often contains lots of minerals and particularly with potted plants, they can build up in the pot over time. And so generally it is a good thing for your plants to use rainwater. And generally it's a good thing for the environment too because tap water has a carbon footprint. People don't realize that, but it does. All the purification, all the transport of it. So anything we can do to use less tap water is an environmental gain. And Dr. Chris mentioned how bathrooms are really good for some of these humidity-loving rainforest plants, the pitcher plants like the Nepenthes. It's a really good use of the steam from your shower to create this kind of lush, humid environment for these moisture-loving plants. I grow calatheas in my bathroom. That's the only place in my house that's actually humid enough. And I've only just moved them up there, so fingers crossed for some lovely uncrispy leaves as the season unfurls. Well, that's about it for this killer episode. Until next time from me, Gareth Richards, happy planting, stay safe. <laughs>